0: We're going to jump right into Acts chapter five, and um, if you've been keeping up with uh, where we're at in Acts chapter five, you will know that we're going. We're covering a lot of ground when I say we're going to finish the chapter today. Okay, so we're going to we're going to get all the way through Acts chapter five, and the title for the message today. What we're going to be looking at in the text is the cost of truth, and we're going to see four ways that. People pay a cost or encounter a cost as they're faced with the truth. And so uh, let's jump right in. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. So if you have an app, you might want to go to that. Otherwise, if if the words have to line up exactly the same for you, the um, text should be up on the screens. Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12 just for a little context. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people, Through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. And as a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets, lay them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And here's where our passage starts today. And then the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. And so they arrested the apostles. They put them in a public jail. But then an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple. Tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. When the high priests and those who were with him, when they arrived back at the temple, they convened the Sanhedrin council, the full council of the Israelites. And then they sent orders to the jail to have the prisoners brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. And so they returned and they reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priest heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them and said, Look, the men that you put in jail, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And the commander went with the servants and they brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. We're going to stop right there. Church, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for truth. And today, Lord, we want to be led into the truth. And so we ask you, Father, to to send your Holy Spirit, that Spirit, you would enlighten us, open our eyes and our hearts to the reality of who Jesus is, that we would see and worship and live in light of the truth, the reality of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would be our teacher, you would be our instructor. And we turn to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we are looking at the cost of truth, and we see that the truth is costly, the truth is costly, not, not only for those who cling to the truth and walk by the truth, but the, the truth is costly to those who oppose the truth as well. And we see that the truth, we know, even in our experience in this life now, that the truth is very, very powerful. It empowers people. The truth divides people. People rise and fall based on which side of the truth to which they cling. Uh, People say that they love the truth. We hear that all the time. I'm a truth teller. I love the truth. But oftentimes when they're confronted with the truth or the raw truth, it's more than they can handle. Uh, It reminds me of... um, Jack Nicholson's line from that movie, A Few Good Men, right? He's being interrogated in court by Tom Cruise's character. Finally, it gets to the point where he's like, just tell me the truth. And Jack Nicholson's like, you want the truth? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth, right? You can't handle the truth. That's what we're looking at today. The religious leaders in our story, they can't handle the truth. And it's not because they don't understand the truth. They can't handle the truth because these religious leaders actually hate the truth, And I think this sentiment is alive and well in our culture today because truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. And the church, we're defined by truth. The truth of the reality of Jesus Christ. The church exists by this truth. We live by this truth Uh, She's empowered by this truth, the church is. And so it's important how we as the church approach the truth, handle the truth, and walk in the truth. And so that means, as Jesus said, we need to count the cost of truth. Examine the cost. Jesus said, count the cost if you would follow me. And today we're going to do that. And in Acts, we see many, many people already, in in just the first few chapters of Acts, many people have responded favorably for the truth, receiving in and walking in. The Holy Spirit has fallen on the early church and thousands of people have been converted. But as we examine the cost of truth in our text, we're going to see four aspects that cost us to remain in the truth. The first thing we see, where there is truth, there is an attack on truth. If we stand in the truth or we walk in the truth, we will be standing and walking in a place of attack. How do people respond to truth when they hear it? Well, here we see the religious leaders attacking it, and that's not unusual. When confronted by truth, people either yield to the truth or they attack it. Standing for truth means we need to withstand attacks upon the truth. And back in Acts chapter 4, we saw this first wave of of persecution kind of hit the church. Peter and John are arrested, they're interrogated and released. And then we see as we read through the book of Acts that this actually becomes a rhythm of life for the early church, especially for the leaders in the early church, just arrest and release. And it got to the point where the Apostle Paul writes, he was writing to this young pastor, Timothy in Ephesus, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's just writing him a letter, right? Just, you know, trying to encourage his fellow pastor. And he says this, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It was just a common fact for the early church that if you're going to side with the truth, you're going to experience persecution. And we see at first, it's just Peter and John who are arrested. And today in our text, we see that all 12 apostles are arrested. It's escalating. Now, it's probably good for us and cautious for us at this point to recognize that we in Southern California culture have not yet suffered and don't face the type of persecution as the early church did that we see in our text. In fact, we don't face uh, even the, what we see in the world around us outside of the United States and in many areas of the world where Christians are, are brutally persecuted uh, for their faith. Now, that's not to say that maybe some of you have experienced persecution or been picked on or perhaps uh, been denied a promotion or lost a job because of your faith. And I don't mean to discount uh, the things that we've experienced because we've stood for our faith. I'm not saying that we haven't paid some sort of price for the faith, but we must admit that our hardships are nowhere near the severity that we see in Acts 5 or what we see in some parts of the world today. And it's good for us to examine what it looks like to to stand with truth in the face of real persecution. of of what I would consider to be severe persecution. The clear promise of the New Testament is that persecution comes to all committed believers of Jesus. Jesus said this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then he says this in verse 11, just, just think about this. He says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of, every kind of evil against you because of me. And then he encourages them, exhorts them. He says, be glad, rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is how the truth has been handled when when confronted, has been attacked. And you either stand for the truth and experience persecution or you don't. Now, leading up to this point, the apostles had been teaching the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and God was moving, has been moving miraculously among them. I know the, the text you guys looked at last week, it's incredible to see. It says, everybody that was brought to them was, was healed. We see that God had empowered the apostles to heal and perform these supernatural works. And the religious leaders had become jealous. The attention that that the apostles were receiving was the attention that the religious leaders were used to having themselves. When someone had a question or someone wanted to pursue the Lord, they wouldn't go anywhere else. They would come to the religious leaders in the temple. And so the apostles were kind of stepping on their toes in this way. They were jealous. They were envious. And we know, or at least I know from my personal life, that jealousy is a powerful enemy. Um, It's been said that contentment Contentment is the state of counting your blessings and finding joy. Envy is the state of counting other people's blessings and finding jealousy. And see, it's a matter of whose blessings you're counting, right? These religious leaders were taking account of other people's blessings, finding themselves in a place of jealousy. Now remember, Jesus had just recently, two months before, had been delivered to Pontius Pilate because of the envy of these religious leaders. This is the same Jewish council. This is the same Sanhedrin that was there just weeks previously when they crucified Jesus. And we're seeing this played out here as well. Why are they jealous? Well, because the crowds are, are being drawn to these apostles. They're jealous of them. But there's a, another element to this jealousy. There, there's a, a, another aspect to this that's more than just simple envy in that way. The leaders are also concerned because this is a new movement that could cause civil unrest. And Rome had given the Sanhedrin a, a limited but, but very specific and very powerful role in the civic life of Jerusalem among the Jews. And so they would hold a court and they could sentence people to shorter jail terms and, and certainly sanction them in, in spiritual religious ways. And so they had a power. And probably much of their concern would draw from the fact that this new faction of believers, this new thing, this church that is stirring up might cause unrest in Jerusalem. And perhaps they were, they were fearful that Rome would come in and take all of their authority away. And so this is a real threat. The apostles are a threat to the position of the Jewish leaders, the power of the Jewish leaders, and the popularity that these leaders had. And so these leaders have the apostles thrown in this public jail. Let's just throw them in the slammer. It's like the drunk tank, a big communal cell. It says it's public. For some reason, you're able to look in it, perhaps, um, the plan was you just slap them in, in this big cell, and then in the morning, we'll get them together, we'll get their, test, their testimony, and we'll sort of move forward. But we read in our text that during the early morning hours, an angel of God, God sends this angel into the jail. And the angel comes in, opens the doors, and instructs the apostles to go back to the temple and to continue preaching and teaching, right? So the doors open, and there, it's like, go back to the temple, This isn't a jailbreak, right? They're not like getting out and running for the hills and hiding out. That would undermine the whole point here. Rather, these men are released and they take a stand for the truth, right? The truth is being attacked. They're released from jail and they don't fall into a pattern or a mode or a mindset of self preservation. They obey God's will and they go right back to the same temple and do the same exact things that got them arrested in the first place. Isn't that cool? Uh, when standing in the face of spiritual attack, how do we respond? It's, it's really good for me to see their response. They take a stand in obedience to God. They take a stand for the truth. Now, it's, it's good for us to remember at this point that the truth doesn't need a defense. They're not there to defend the truth. The truth is the truth, right? The truth needs witnesses. God sent these men back to the temple to bear witness of the reality of Jesus Christ, to preach and teach everything that they had seen, to preach and teach everything they had experienced, to preach and teach the fulfillment of the law based on things that they themselves had seen and experienced and known to be true. We don't have to be defenders of the truth. The truth is the truth. No one can change the truth. We are called to be witnesses of the truth to take our place as as the truth is attacked, to stand and bear witness to the reality of the truth. Now, probably many of us here today face hardship or conflict because we do that. I I know many of you probably stand for the truth, and the truth is increasingly under attack at all levels uh, in in our culture right now. For example, in the classroom, from the youngest level in the classroom up all the way through graduate school, through college especially, the truth is under a full-on assault. The truth is being attacked in the news media and celebrity culture. The truth is being attacked uh, by employers and coworkers of workplace environments and So often, when I experience that kind of attack on the truth or opposition to the truth, my default is, "Lord, deliver me from this hardship and oftentimes we, when we pray for the persecuted church we f- talk about people who experience levels of persecution that we have not yet, by the grace of God, experienced in Southern California. Our first thought is we pray for deliverance. We pray for the attacks to cease. We pray against the opposition that they're facing. We pray against the opposition that we face. And listen, that is good, and that is right, and we should be doing that. But in the midst of that, I want to propose today, I think it's good for us to consider perhaps Perhaps God has you in a place of persecution for a reason. Maybe his plan isn't to immediately deliver you. Maybe God has you in a place of hardship so that you can take a stand in the face of adversity. He, he sends the apostles right back to the temple, right a very public place. And we remember Jesus spoke of the light, saying he's the light of the world. We know that light shines most clearly in dark environments. The darker it is, the brighter the light shines. And so often we want to flee and, and flee to the light, but God sends his people into dark environments. The dark is where the lost are. And that's what we see happening here. As you read through Acts, you're going to read about a lot of jail time. These guys uh, in the early church did some serious time. The... the the founding fathers of our church were jailbirds, like straight up, over and over. But as you see through Acts, it's not always the case. They're not always sent to prison. In Acts chapter 12, we see James arrested, and he's beheaded, right? He didn't get to serve jail time. Peter is arrested later, and he's released, and God has him flee. He doesn't have him go back to the temple. He flees for his life chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're in Philippi, which is in Greece. They're arrested. They're in jail. Remember this story? In the middle of the night, there's this earthquake. The doors swing open, and God has them remain in prison. They don't run. They don't even leave the jail. And that has given them an opportunity. Now, now a guard is curious. Why aren't you running? Why are you still here? They share the gospel to this guy, and the gospel advances, God uses these circumstances and situations of persecution for his glory. We don't often understand that. So it changes the way we pray. It changes, should change the way we think about persecution. In uh, Acts chapter 9, I love this part. Paul is told that he's going to stand before uh, leaders and kings and rulers for the name of God, right? Well, Paul definitely does that. He definitely gets to stand before kings and rulers, but he does it as a prisoner, We see that Paul is able to share the gospel with King Agrippa and his queen, but he does that with shackles on his arms as a prisoner. God uses him. Circumstances vary throughout Acts, and certainly circumstances vary in our world today. Sometimes we're called to take a stand and preach. Sometimes we're sent back into the temple. Sometimes we're to flee and live to preach another day. Sometimes we're called to stand faithful even in the face of persecution even in the face of real hardship. There's a man who lived in the 1600s named John Bunyan. Um, John Bunyan wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress that if you went to um, a good high school, you probably read. Um, John Bunyan was arrested in 1660 for preaching without a license. And he lived in England, and the Church of England had a, a monopoly on preaching and and anything in, in the religious life, the Protestant church had a, a firm stronghold there in England. And so he's warned by a letter and, uh, to, to cease and desist, right? And he was obedient to the Lord. He's, he's having a fruitful ministry. People were being saved. And um, he's arrested and he's sent to jail. He serves 12 years in prison, 12 years for preaching without a license. I wish there were more people that would preach without a license in the United States. But this apparently was a problem in England He had a a daughter who was, uh, I believe she was blind, and three other kids, young children. His wife suffered terribly while he was in prison, living off of charity. And while he was in prison, he wrote these words. He said, I saw in this condition that I was a man, that I'm a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. And yet, I thought, I must do this. And so I read that, and I'm like, well, Well, how did he know? Like, how did he know that he was supposed to stay in jail and not sign some whatever? I promise not. Like, how did he know he wasn't supposed to flee to fight another day? He wrote this in prison as well. He said, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Now, it was in prison that he wrote the bulk of his book, A Pilgrim's Progress. It wasn't published until he was out of prison. But in that book, you will see it's just a a fabulous uh, allegory of the Christian life. And um, it's 330 years old. I highly recommend it if you have not read it. Um, It's offered in a updated English version that I strongly recommend you read if you choose to read it. It's 330 years old and it is just as pertinent and fresh today for us to consider this allegory as it was 330 years ago. This man remained faithful even though it led him to prison and it led his family and even his kids to extreme hardship. Back to Acts 5. The Sanhedrin, this, this Jewish council, um, is gathering, it's in the morning, they've got their 12 prisoners. Now, the Sanhedrin, just real quick, is a council um, that rules uh, Jewish culture and even politics in Jerusalem at this time. They were the ruling religious entity in Jerusalem. Very powerful if you were a Jew. And at this point in history, this Sanhedrin council of men, this Sanhedrin council consisted almost exclusively of Sadducees. Uh, there were very few Pharisees, possibly as few as two Pharisees who were on this council, mostly Sadducees. So there are there two religious political groups in Jewish culture at this time. There was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it's just like we have in the House of Representatives of the Senate. That, that group, that body of people is made up of a combination of Democrats and Republicans here in America. Back then, the Sanhedrin, in the same way, was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, remember that the Pharisees were the group that went to extremes to obey every letter of the law. They cared about every single word of the law that it was obeyed. The Sadducees did not follow the word of God closely. Uh, They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the afterlife. Certainly no supernatural intervention. Nothing. And so here's this council, this ruling council that throws these 12 men in the jail. And what does God do? God sends an angel that they don't believe in to supernaturally rescue them. It's no accident. God's, you know, going to have the last word. Interestingly, we see in history that some Pharisees are converted and follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee and uh, was converted to Christianity. Uh, There's no record in history of any Sadducees, sadly, uh, following Jesus. Now, it's also interesting at this point to note, because I think it's valuable for us to see that um, the, it was the Pharisees that opposed Jesus in his ministry. The Pharisees were the ones that gave Jesus the grief because they care very much about the letter of the law. And Jesus is like, they're to fulfill the law. And they're like, wait, are you changing the law? Wait, are you saying that you're the Messiah? Like, they're, they're, they're like, wait, you're messing with the letter and the words of the law in their heart and in their mind. It was opposing the letters of the law that they were teaching. It's the Pharisees that opposed Jesus. However, we see that it's the Sadducees that opposed the early church. Why did the Sadducees oppose the early church? Well, because they're preaching supernatural, this supernatural Holy Spirit. They're they're supernaturally healing people. The Sadducees take particular exception to the methods, methods of the early church because they directly contradict what they were teaching. And so um, we see the Sadducees totally disappear from history in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. When the Romans come back in, take Jerusalem, destroy half the city, destroy, destroy the temple, the Sadducees are no more. And so that's just a brief little understanding just so as you're seeing the conflict in Acts, you can, you can kind of understand the context from which it's coming. The Sanhedrin was ruled by these people that were not driven by the letter of the law. Verse 24 in our passage, it says, As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, it says they were baffled. They're baffled about it, wondering what could come of this, right? They were perplexed. I bet they were perplexed. What do you think perplexed the most? Was it the fact that the apostles got out of a still-locked, still-guarded jail without anyone seeing them? Or was it the fact that they were apparently stupid enough to go back into the temple, a very public place, and do the same things that got them arrested in the first place? They were for sure perplexed. They're like, what is up with these guys? What's happening? But notice that they never ask how you got out of jail. They, 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 never, they don't ask about that. They don't want to hear testimony about that. It was a miracle. They can't explain it. They didn't believe in the possibility of a miracle, and so they ignore it. And so the apostles are brought back before this council the jailbreak is ignored, and we see a repeat of a very similar conversation that we saw in Acts chapter 4, where they say, we told you not to do this anymore. And Peter responds, we must obey God and not man. And then there's this interesting little kind of like thing that the leaders throw in there. And this is important for us to look at. It's in Acts chapter 5 verse 28. They're they're saying, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of his, this man's blood. They're saying, you, you, you're going around teaching trying to make us look bad. You're trying to make us look guilty for killing Jesus. Isn't that interesting? This is the same council that had handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate two months before. This is the same council. Remember, Pilate three times, three times tried to release Jesus. In John's gospel, he asks three times what Jesus had done to deserve to die. And it was these same religious leaders, this same council, that whipped up the people to cry, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands of it. He passes the responsibility back to the people. And he says, let his blood be upon us and upon your children. And now this council... The same Jewish council is accusing the apostles of trying to put the guilt of Jesus on them. They're they're trying to dodge the truth, aren't they? They're trying to change the reality of what had happened. They don't want to bear the responsibility for that. The apostles are are kind of winning in popularity right now. They don't want to be seen as unpopular. Abraham Lincoln once said, How many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? Four. Four. Saying that a tail is a leg does not make it a leg. (laughs) I love Abraham Lincoln. See, people can lie and misrepresent the facts, but you can't change the truth. Next, we're going to see the second cost here, the cost of affirming the truth, the cost of affirming the truth. And In the midst of this attack, we're going to see the apostles affirm the truth, Verse 29, it says, Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. And the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus. Listen to this. He's confronting their challenge. Like, hey, you're accusing us of being guilty of Jesus' murder? Peter's like, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and a savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Man, that is boldness. After the high priests make that accusation to them, like, you're just trying to make us look guilty. Peter's like, well, let's be perfectly clear here. You actually murdered Jesus by hanging him on a tree. These guys were obviously evangelists and not diplomats. They weren't trying to work and negotiate their way out of this. They were blunt and they were direct and how they approach the truth. There's tremendous power in being blunt and being direct. Our words carry tremendous power with them. And in this instance, we see directness and bluntness and a sense of immediacy be of tremendous benefit. They're like, wait, we're not going to let this slide. We're going to kind of like hold you accountable here. Uh, Winston Churchill was like that. He was a witty man who spoke blunt honesty. Um, one of his biographies that I read, I read two biographies. One of them was just had a whole bunch of excellent encounters that he had. There's one time where um, the very first female member of British Parliament, her name is Nancy Astor. Ironically, she's an American woman that married a British aristocrat. She's the first woman uh, in Britain to serve as a member of Parliament. And she got into it with Winston Churchill on the floor. You know, they openly debate, and it gets crazy. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen that. It's on one of the, like, high number channels on TV. But So they're uh, debating, and she gets to the point where she throws her hands up. She's like, Tuh. and she says this, Winston, if I was your wife, I would poison your tea. <laughs> she gets to that point. If I was your wife, I'd poison your tea. Winston Churchill doesn't miss a beat like this. He goes, and if I was your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> Timing is everything, right? Winston Churchill was a great leader, um, but he was certainly not perfect. Uh, history tells us that he liked to drink, and you guys have got me talking about Winston Churchill. This is very brief, um, and it relates. So he had, a, he had a close friend most of his life, and uh, she was very, they, they were very close. He was able to talk to her about a lot of things. Her name was Bessie. One evening after a state dinner, they get in the car, and Winston had had uh, too much to drink, and... Um, so the story goes, and they're in the car, and her name is Bessie, and she turns to him, and she says, Winston, you're drunk. What's more, you are disgustingly drunk. Winston Churchill, like this, he's like, Bessie, you're ugly. <laughs> and what's more, you're disgustingly ugly. And I will wake up tomorrow, and I won't be drunk, but you'll still be ugly. <laughs> See, the power of our words... The power of our words can tear people down in a second. The power of our words can glorify the living God in a second. We have to be wise. We have to know what the Father is leading us into. We have to weigh our words, our deliver- and And so my point in this is don't be like Winston Churchill. The apostles were blunt. But they didn't sink to the level of trading insults. They're very blunt and clear in their affirmation of the truth. And they say to this council, you murdered Jesus. The word that's used for murder there literally means to take someone's life with your own hands. Now we know that it was some r- random Roman soldiers that grabbed Jesus' arms and actually drove the spikes through him and got him up in this place to, to where he actually died. But what they're saying is like, you're just as culpable as the people that put their hands on Jesus is the, is the language and the bluntness. And then he testifies that Jesus is exalted as the ruler and the savior, that Jesus offers repentance to Israel, that Jesus offers forgiveness of sin. This is bold, this is blunt testimony of the truth. Peter and the apostles are giving them the truth. And remember, these religious leaders cannot handle the truth, not because they don't understand it, because they hate the truth. And they hate it so much that we see as our passage continues that they want to kill the apostles. Now, it's not, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that these men get jealous and then they want to murder someone. They had just done the same exact thing to Jesus like two months previously. But then something does happen. We see the council, and this is our third point, avoiding the truth. We're going to look at the cost of avoiding the truth. Verse 33, so Peter just told them the truth, like, hey, actually, you murdered Jesus? And they say this, When they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, okay, this guy Gamaliel, he's the guy that raised up the Apostle Paul as a Pharisee, one of the very few Pharisees on the Sanhedrin council, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. That is good counsel, time for a breather, right? And he says to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody. A group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. And then all of his followers, they were dispersed and they came of nothing. And then after that, a man, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census. And he attracted a following. But he also perished. And all of his followers were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. For if this plan or if this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And then it says the council was persuaded by him. And so his advice is rather than dealing with it, the plan is let's just avoid it. Let's remain neutral. Let, Let it go. Don't worry. Things are going to sort themselves out. And at first glance, this actually seems like a rather sensible plan. I mean, after all, if the apostles are simply just more religious fanatics doing something under their own power, then it's going to come of nothing. But if they're doing the work of God, then there's nothing we can do to stop it. So let it go. Don't worry about it. Sounds like wise counsel. But this approach, this pursuing neutrality, it reminds me of the wisdom of our current age also. People claim to not be against Christ but they're not, they're not for him either. People that I knew that I was raised with going to, going to church and, and going on missions trips and growing in the Lord with, when I meet them now and they're just kind of like this, eh, yeah, no, I'm not opposed to that. I've just kind of like grown and whatever. You know, they're not like opposed to it, but they're not for it. They're not against the church, but they're not for it. At this point, it's good for us to remember that Jesus himself said, whoever is not with me is against me. That for Christianity, for those of us That Look at the truth of the gospel. Neutrality is not the way to deal with the truth. There's another flaw to Gamaliel's counsel here as well. It is not true that the work of religious fanatics will simply go away, as he said. Right? Uh, False religions don't go away. I don't know if you know, but there are false religions that are more than 1,000 years old, and they're growing still in our world right now. There are hundreds of false religions and cults that are thriving These things can't simply be trusted to go away. So Gamaliel's counsel, let it be, is bad counsel. But it's important for us to see it's more than just bad counsel. It's more than just bad advice. Gamaliel had made a decision, and his decision was against Christ. His his counsel was against Christ. Indecision is a decision. Indecision is is a decision. There's a real cost to avoiding the truth. And, and probably the most powerful place where we see this in the Bible is in the, uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 21. The apostle John, uh, he describes and categorizes this group of people who are not going to heaven, okay? Now, why he would do that, like for me, I'd just be like, those are people that aren't going to heaven. That's, a, that's a kind of a clear enough category. But it's really helpful that he does this because the first category and, and kind of like the leading category that he leads with is the cowardly and the fearful. Now, being cowardly and being fearful aren't necessarily sins, but what he's doing is he's describing the neutral. He's describing people who aren't really against Christ. They're just ashamed or afraid to make a commitment to follow him. Perhaps they know the truth, and they might even recognize it as the truth, but they're afraid to make a stand. These people are people who believe Jesus is God, maybe. But they're afraid or ashamed to follow him. And in our culture today, I can I can understand how that's such a strong temptation because being a Christian is quickly becoming synonymous with being an intolerant person. When someone hears that you're a Christian, in our culture it's growing more and more. Well, you're a Christian, you're intolerant. And who wants to be considered intolerant, right? Self-identifying as a Christian is becoming more and more of a bold move to boldly stand in the name of Jesus. Following Jesus is becoming risky to one's reputation. And so the people that the Apostle John are talking about are people who recognize the truth about God. They recognize the truth about Jesus, but they've counted the cost of following Jesus, and they, don't, they just don't want to pay the price. There's too much of a price. These are the cowardly, the neutral, the neutral. And that is Gamaliel's counsel. Gamaliel is trying to usher Israel into that group that the Apostle John saw in Revelation 21. Back to our text, uh, verse 40. It says After they called in the apostles, they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. And they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's such a a convicting picture for me to see. Because when I deal with rejection, when I deal with persecution, I struggle to rejoice or to find joy in the fact that I was worthy to be treated shamefully. I, I don't quickly or readily find joy in that. The apostles go out from jail after being whipped it says they were flogged. Um, so that goes back to Deuteronomy. I, the, Israel set laws, a parameter. Like you can't, we, we don't want to kill people by whipping them, right? That's a separate sentence. So if, if you've been sentenced to be whipped, that means that you can only be whipped 40 times is what was set in Deuteronomy. And then it was later changed because you know they're real concerned about following the letter of the law and they don't want anyone to whip someone accidentally an extra lash. And so it became, 39, or it became 40 minus 1. And so these guys would have been whipped 39 times each on their back. And it would have left their back uh, bloody and raw and, and pretty messed up. It would have been extraordinarily painful for sure. But they go out of jail after being whipped rejoicing that they're able to be treated shamefully in Jesus' name, rejoicing in this. They go rejoicing into the temple and into the homes, and they continue teaching and proclaiming. That the way that that's written, going into the homes and everywhere they went, it's talking about they just that's how they lived their life. You couldn't hold them back. You couldn't stop them. Probably even say, like, look, I was counted worthy of this. You, you, you have to see Jesus. You have to know Jesus. You have to understand the value of this. Jesus is so valuable to me that, that it was worth it. Now, we know that this sentence, this flogging was meant to intimidate them. It was meant to, to frighten them. Obviously, it didn't work. Now, we don't experience that. We're not at the threat of like taking in and being whipped by the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus, in our culture yet. However, seeing these men rejoice in their suffering, I think it does help us. I think it does good for us. Because whenever we do face, we know that the Lord will supply what we need. The Lord will supply courage. In hardship, the Lord gives us perseverance. Now, the hardships that we face, uh, they're meant to intimidate us, just like the flogging that we see the apostles go through here. But see, to these men, it was the joy of knowing Jesus. It was the joy of knowing Jesus that brought them joy. It was the joy of knowing Jesus that allowed them to count the cost and to realize knowing Jesus far outweighs these threats, far outweighs this intimidation. It far outweighs even a whipping that they had received. We see the apostles immediately return to preaching. Now, the Greek word for preaching here is also used... As a word that that means evangelize. The kind of preaching they're doing is evangelistic. They're out making a testimony. Jesus was a real man sent from God with the power of God. And he was proven himself to be the son of God. And he, he was the sacrifice by God for our sins. And not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, but he rose from the grave. And he didn't just rise from the grave. All of us who put our faith in Jesus are now brought into this new life. We're not afraid of death. We're given a brand new life. We're given a a brand new internal compass. We're given a brand new power that dwells within us. And they're, they're a living testimony, a gospel machine. They were obsessed with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They could not stop telling everyone about Jesus. They could not be intimidated by jail time or by beatings. The truth that Jesus was better And far better was obvious in their life. Their life explained to people, Jesus is better. Now these guys, these apostles knew this because they knew Jesus. They had seen Jesus and followed Jesus. They had seen, witnessed Jesus very publicly stand for them, stand for the truth as he was hung on a cross nearly naked, enduring shame and pain. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a strong charge to live boldly in light of these things that the apostles witnessed firsthand. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and the perfecter of our faith. It was for the joy that lay before Him that He endured the cross, despising shame, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, that is our call today. As we stand with the truth, don't allow indifference to creep in. As you stand with the truth and you experience attacks, don't shy away. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus keeps the joy that we know in life set right before us. And it's the joy that enables us to joyfully respond to Jesus. Even in the midst of hardships, we're able to take a stand for Jesus joyfully and publicly when we walk not just with Jesus but we keep Jesus forefront in our mind. It's like that, that old hymn that we sung when I was growing up in, in church. I'm from the East Coast, so we sang old hymns. But this one uh, I, I love. is written, written by a woman in the 1920s, and it's probably called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus now that I think about it. But anyway, it's got this one line where it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I, I love that because... Um, as I've grown in, in intimacy with Jesus over the years, I picture that as just pull, like stuff happening in the world. And I'm like looking at Jesus, but I'm, I'm looking at this stuff or this stuff over here, right? And I have like a, a thousand children now in my house. And I'm just like, oh, there's so many things over here. And there's so much happening at work. There's just so much pressure. And it's like that song, I love with the Holy Spirit, show me you just draw Jesus in close. And the closer Jesus gets, the more and more I can't see anybody in this room right now. And when we're experiencing those seasons of life where it seems like we don't have breath, where it seems like we don't have vision, where it seems like perhaps you don't have money or maybe you don't have a job or maybe you're called to do something with your faith but you're afraid it's going to cost you something, it's in those moments, and here's the charge, to draw near to Jesus, to pull him in and go face to face with Jesus. Making a stand for truth starts with knowing Jesus. Not just quietly, not some form of some stoic 1950s Christianity. The Bible teaches nothing of stoicism in our faith. Live for Jesus in the places where you go. Shine as a light. Live for Jesus in your home, in your neighborhood. Right? Let your neighbors know where you stand. Live for Jesus in your school and in your workplace. Shine the light of Jesus in Christ Living for the truth is not living in fear. And I'll close with this. In John chapter 8, Jesus gives us this promise, this truth. He says, if you continue in my word, you're really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so church, my encouragement for you is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Enjoy the freedom of knowing Jesus. Enjoy the freedom that comes and walking in Christ in the truth, Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you again for your word and so good God to be with my friends and brothers and sisters here, Lord. And it's a heavy word as we look at response to persecution and standing with the truth. God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would show us, show us our fear. Show us our timidity. Show us, God, where, like in my case, where I care too much about what people think about me. Show us, God, where maybe we're worried about financial loss so we don't stand for the truth. worried about offending people. Pray, God, that you would convict us of these things, that we would draw Jesus near. We pray today that the joy of knowing you and the joy of your word would wash over us today. Holy Spirit, I pray we would, we would receive your word today. We would respond to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.